Let's be honest, few humans enjoy meetings and many feel trapped in meetings. As leaders, we don't want to burden those we lead, but meetings can seem to do that more often than not. We wanted to address the pain of meetings through the Meetings with Saints Library. Here we have 15 plus presentations dedicated to improving the meetings we run. We have experts in the field addressing topics like getting people involved in meetings, staying on task, dealing with conflict in meetings, and a ton more. We'd love you to explore the full Meetings with Saints library over 14 days at no cost to you. You can do this by visiting leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. We'll also give you access to all of our virtual libraries that educate about other leadership topics. It's really good stuff. So visit leadingsaints.org 14 or click the link in the show notes. The following episode is a throwback episode, one that was published previously and was extremely popular. To see the details of when this was originally published, see the show notes. Enjoy this throwback episode. Now in this episode, it's just me, folks. Well, okay, that's not entirely true. Uh, later on in this episode, I will share some clips of some interviews that uh, that I did. But the large majority of it is just going to be me and some thoughts I've done with some research and preparation that I've gone through here. I want to talk about the Elders Quorum. Now, don't worry, ladies, if I realize you don't attend Elders Quorum, but I think there still be some value in this, or or maybe it will. You'll be prompted maybe a gentleman in your life that you could share this with who attends an elders quorum. Now think of the typical elders quorum. Now I realize there's probably a variety of experiences people have when it comes to elders quorum. Some people absolutely love elders quorum or they are really, it's really meeting their expectation. I don't know if that would be the majority of people that attend church regularly. And then there's other elders quorums that, you know, it's fine. Nothing to really complain about, but it's sort of just going through the motions. I go every other week because that's just what we do in our religious tradition. But, you know, if President Nelson came out tomorrow and said, hey, we're just going to do elders quorum once a month, like how many elders in your quorum would really complain about that, right? I mean, would they really miss it? But I really hope we're building a quorum experience in every quorum in the church that hopefully we're aiming for it to be an experience that people really appreciate. That if it was canceled, people would miss it. Or if they have to be out of town one week, they think, ah, man, I have to miss Elders Quorum. Is it a revelatory experience, as Elder Bednar talked about? Is, is it rather than a quorum meeting, is it a quorum revelatory experience? Why or why not? Why or why not? So I just want to maybe play in this sandbox of, of Elders Quorum, and, and uh, I want to share some thoughts I've, I've had and, and um, some ideas and perspectives and experiences I've had that may give you some ideas or perspective or tools that will help you improve the Elders Quorum experience. So just think of the general Elders Quorum experience. There's typically, you know, you show up, there's uh, there's some brotherhood there that's maybe already established, some handshakes, you know, people are asking some questions, many of those questions superficial, you know, before the meeting, how are you doing? How's your job going? How's your family? And that type of thing. And the lessons presented, right? Maybe 20% of the people make 80% of the comments. And forgive my generalization. I mean, this is just, as I have experienced various quorums and various wards, this has sort of been my experience, right? I mean, they've been great, but nothing like to write home about. Nothing like exceptional or extraordinary. But at the end of the day, every other week we can meet and do our quorum thing and have a lesson and go home, right? And we had our quorum meeting. 
But as I've been pondering over the Elders Quorum experience, it caused me today uh, to go to our Leading Saints Helpers group on Facebook. And if you're not a part of this group, I encourage you to go to Leading Saints Helpers, search that in in Facebook and, and join this group. We have a lot of interesting questions that go back and forth around leadership topics and concepts that really end up to be enlightening conversations. But I posed this, this poll. I put a poll out there. I said, for those who attend Elders Quorum, if you had a magic wand and could change one thing about Elders Quorum without changing a current policy, what would it be? And I invited people to start listing answers and then vote on those answers. The number one answer at the time I'm looking at this and it looks like, looks like it's running away with the lead is more informal, less Elders Quorum, less in script, and more get-togethers, movie nights, group dates. The second one was better teaching. The third one was use a classroom. And I think this is, uh, I know like my Elders Quorum, we meet in the, the chapel and it is not a very good place to facilitate a quorum experience. It's a great place to facilitate a lecture type, of, you know, which sacrament meeting is. So anyways, but th those first two really stood out to me. And there's the ones that are getting sort of running away with the, the votes is a better teaching is number two. And then this, the first one is more informal, less elders quorum lesson scripts and more get togethers, movie nights, group dates, right? More camaraderie, more social experiences, that sort of thing. So interesting nonetheless. In the comments of that, the Facebook poll, one individual writes, I already have Sunday school and home study. I do not need another lesson, especially because I already study the gospel or general conference talks multiple times each conference. One person says, teaching can always be improved. The connection though, that's what's missing, at least in our ward. One made, made a decent point, I thought, is as many individuals choose the first answer, which is, you know, more activities and socials, and then not come to planned activities. I voted to improve teaching, thinking that, that a dynamic Sunday experience would lead to improve participation, bonding, whatever, on non-Sunday. So, and the, the comments go on. But nonetheless, I found it interesting that what I take from this very non-scientific poll is that individuals are really seeking for connection, and they're seeking for community, right? And connection through community. So then it poses the question, well, I, okay, what does, what is the purpose of elders quorum? And typically when we are looking for the purpose of things in the church, we go to the handbooks. And in handbook two, 7.1.2, it gives the primary purpose of a quorum. And this is what it says. The primary purposes of quorums are to serve others, build unity and brotherhood, and instruct members in doctrines, principles, and duties. So maybe take a moment and just grade yourself, whether you're in the elders quorum presidency or not, or you're just a, attend as, as a member of the quorum. How would you grade the quorum on those things as far as how well do you serve, serve others? How well do you build unity and brotherhood? And then, of course, how well do you instruct members in doctrines, principles, and duties? I think in general, the quorum focuses mainly on that third one, right? We have a core meeting and our sole purpose is to uh, rattle off some announcements and then we sort of pitch the football over to the instructor in order for them to to give a lesson whether that lesson is a, a discussion or more of a lecture that's make kind of differs from quorum to quorum across the church but we sort of feel like well you know we're instructing in doctrines principles and duties and yeah we want to serve others so we'll announce the move every once in a while and build unity and brotherhood well uh, I, I i guess we're doing that i mean we're trying we we have that yearly or you know, biannual social that we get together and, and play games or have a movie night or whatever, but I hope that's doing it, right? But I think, I mean, I, again, I hate to generalize and speak for everybody else, but from my experience as an Elders Quorum president uh, just a year or so ago, like 
I was constantly desiring it to be better. And a lot of the times it was difficult to do. Like I wanted to increase the experience of that elders quorum, but I just didn't know how to do. I wanted to build unity. I wanted to build brotherhood. I saw people come and they were just, they weren't really connecting, right? They were staying on that superficial level. And I just was striving to dig deeper. I had a great mentor years ago who told me, never let a quorum meeting turn into another Sunday school class. Never let a quorum meeting turn into another Sunday school class. I mean, we already have Sunday school, right? Every other week on the, 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 the odd weeks that we're not in, in the elders quorum. Uh, really, what we're, some, we're sometimes doing is just creating another Sunday school class that just has one gender in it. And I think this dynamic, this, this uh, challenge has been going on for a long time. There's a quote by President Kimball he shared in conference, I think this is back in 1980, early 80s nonetheless. He said, we often do vigorous enlistment work to get members to come to church, but then do not adequately watch over what they receive when they do come. Wow, Ugh, that stings a little bit, right? Like we sort of celebrate and want to throw a party when we get that inactive to show up to church, but are we giving them something to show up for that excites them, that gets them to come back the next week? And I'm afraid, and again, I don't mean to generalize, but I'm just saying that I'm afraid that we, a lot of our quorums are a group of men that really don't know each other, that aren't able to connect. And I get it. I, it's hard. It is hard. And we have the, this culture that, you know, we all attend a certain ward and we all show up and and, and they'll be there. A lot of people who have that tradition of showing up every week, they'll be there. But are they connecting? I think that's where the true leadership can come in, that we can really challenge ourselves. Imagine this discussion, going back to the handbook two, the, the, the primary purposes of, of quorums. Imagine if you took that purpose in a presidency meeting and sat with it and discussed it and said, brethren, we're going to take the next hour and we're just going to discuss that question. Are we living up to the purposes of a quorum to serve others, build unity and brotherhood and instruct members in doctrines, principles and duties? Why or why not? And then, I mean, that's when the revelation engine just kicks in is when we can challenge ourselves with a question or a particular situation and say, how do we get to that vision? How can we break through to that level of quorum meeting? And I think it's possible. I absolutely, there's probably individuals listening right now think our quorum is like that. And if, you, if you're saying that, would you email me, leadingsaints.org slash contact and say, we've cracked the code, we've got it. Again, not that you've cracked the code, but, but I, I'm sure there, there's something, uh, a, a habit or a tactic that you use to, to establish that. So I'd love to hear from you. But I mean, imagine, or even in a quorum meeting, Imagine bringing that up and say, you know, put the general conference talk away for this quorum meeting. We're not just having another Sunday school class. We are going to figure out how we can live up to this purpose. It's been an established, it's been established in handbook two, chapter seven. How can we live up to the primary purposes of our quorum? Imagine the revelation. Hopefully that inspires you. But again, I just think we're generally quorums are groups of men that really don't know each other. They know the names, they know families generally, but that's not a place where people feel comfortable coming in and sharing their deepest, darkest struggle. If somebody's laid off that week, how many, they may mention it. Yeah. Hey guys, I'm looking for a new job. I was laid off, but how many come in and in, in with tears and say, I'm a broken man because I was laid off this week, right? When does that happen? And when we can pray over each other that way and, and really kick it into gear and, and help that individual, not just find a job, but help them stay sustained spiritually and mentally, right? Emotionally. Uh, there's an article written by Sheldon Lawrence, just an online blog that was uh, an article he wrote called a, a Quorum of Strangers on the Isolation of Mormon Men. In that article, he writes, 
A recent article in The Atlantic points out that men, especially middle-aged white men, are increasingly dying from lives lived in isolation and addiction. I would like to believe that Mormon men somehow buck this trend. After all, aren't we part of a tight-knit community capable of self-organizing in a moment's notice? Just hand us a natural disaster and we'll show up with rakes and shovels. But despite the church's obvious strength in organizing labor, it's my observation that Mormon men lead surprisingly isolated and lonely lives. Brethren, I tend to agree with Sheldon. I mean, we, we are a machine as an organization. Give us a natural disaster, we'll show up, and we know how to rake leaves. We know how to, forget what they call it in the South when they clean out the homes from floods. Like you talk with some of those the Southern Texans after the uh, Hurricane Harvey. I mean, they know how to, how to fix a home and, and get people back on their feet. But when an individual is like in, in a weak marriage, when, they're in their, when they are in the midst of addiction, a lot of times we don't know what to do with them. There's no rake to grab or shovel to grab. There's no house to paint or ditch to dig. Like we don't know how to address that. And so we generally just create a culture. We put on that facade and get back to church and say, well, let's just keep smiling, folks. Maybe this will pass. And, uh, and a lot of times they do, right? And, but a lot of times these are, these are moments of, of quiet desperation. And I love the throw quote that, that, that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. I don't think we're exempt from that. The mass of men, even in our quorums, lead lives of quiet desperation. And they don't, they're, just, they're just battling it under the surface. And, and they're just not willing to let anybody in to, to help them out. Right. And it's that brotherhood. Of course, we can turn to prayer and scriptures, but if we don't have that brotherhood and unity, like that can, that can be dramatic. And I'm going to share uh, some reasons why. But I think of the, the quote, or I'm sorry, the scripture in Proverbs 12, 27, the substance of a diligent man is precious. The substance of a diligent man is precious. You know, speaking as a man and uh, associating with other men and, and really being, having quorum experiences, you know, not that, I'm not here to state that I've never had a quorum experience that's been deep and had substance, of course, but those connections, those moments where you bind together, there's sort of that team feeling and you've got each other's back, like that's special. And that's where the diligent man is precious. As I have really been able to connect with other men, it's been precious. So let me ask you this question. What is the biggest threat to men in our current day? Just speaking of, uh, of adult men, I mean, you can maybe include youth in there as well, but just speaking of adult men, what is the biggest threat to men in our current day? You may jump to pornography, man. I don't blame you. I mean, that's that's. <laughs> and you talk to any bishop, and he's up in up to his eyeballs in, in pornography confessions, right? How about laziness? Maybe again, there's a lot of hardworking men out there, but I know there's a lot of wives that are frustrated that maybe you know ambition isn't overflowing in in the heart of their men, right? Uh, video games. I'm not much of a gamer myself, but I know I've heard, uh, I've seen a lot of tears of women as far as that goes with video games, right? And I would say none of those. In my opinion, none of those are the biggest threat. The biggest threat that the adversary has on us men is the attack he is waging on the hearts of men. Now that may sound kind of vague and out there, but simply this, every man has one question that he's trying to answer. And that question is, do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to provide for my family? Do I have what it takes to be an honorable priesthood holder? Do I have, a, have what it takes to lead? Do I have what it takes to keep my job? 
This is the question, whether they realize it or not, they're trying to answer every single day. And when they can't answer that, the adversary is in the driver's seat. The adversary can then beat them down and drive them towards pornography and drive them towards video games and drive them towards apathy and laziness. The heart of men is attacked. And we know this from Doctrine and Covenants 10, verse 12. The devil has sought to lay a cunning plan that he may destroy this work. Now, how does the adversary work? Right? Robert Farrell asked me this question a few weeks ago, which I every time he asked me a question in that interview, I just completely fumbled the ball. But nonetheless, how does the adversary work? Especially if it's, it says in Doctrine and Covenants 10, this is a cunning plan. This isn't just a plan he thought up or he thought he'd give a try. This is a thought out, very cunning plan. And that plan does not include him just simply appearing as an as a evil angel over our shoulder and saying, hey, you should go look at pornography. Hey, you should go rob a bank. Hey, you should ignore your wife and go play video games. Like That's not how it works. And Robert Farrell talked about this, that the, the adversary attacks the heart, the heart of men. He attacks through contention, like it says in Doctrine and Covenants 10. He stirreth up our hearts. Doctrine and Covenants 10 verse 24. It all happens in our heart. That is where the battle is happening. In Dr. Covenants 10, 26, even this, I, this is such an interesting twist to the cunning plan that the adversary has for our hearts. It says, and thus he flattereth them and leadeth them along until he draggeth their soul, souls down to hell. And thus he causeth them to catch themselves in our own snare. You see, it's not, the, it's not the adversary's snare. It's our own snare. And the reality is he doesn't tempt us. He just perpetuates the thoughts we create on our own. So when we have a long day at work and, uh, our, and our relationship is strained with our boss, which then carries over to the uh, strain with our, our wife, the adversary has some contention there to work with. And all he has to do is wait for you to think, ah, I'm not a very good husband. And then he perpetuates that thought with, yep, you're not a very good husband and don't forget about it. That's why everything's not working. He never tempts us, right? He just perpetuates that thought. And then when you're after that long day when you're sitting in, you know, on your phone alone in a room and pornography is right there, of course you go that direction because your heart is shattered. It's being beat. And so it's the heart of men that is the biggest concern. The biggest threat to men is their own heart and the lack of it being sustained and supported and loved and built up. It's that attack that the adversary is having on the heart. So this same person, imagine if, if, you, if your heart is being attacked, that things aren't going well at work or in your relationships and the adversary just keeps perpetuating that thought in your mind. He keeps perpetuating it and saying, yeah, you're worthless. It's not working. And it'll, it'll probably never work. And that's the state that they walk into that core meeting, right? And sure, they hear some gospel principles, they, but a lot of times the adversary just takes those gospel principles and throws it in their face again, right? They've had a hard day at work in the relationship. They show up on Sunday and they hear, Hey, we need to do ministering. And all the adversary says is, man, you're not very good at that either. Huh? Yeah. You've never been a good home teacher. And now you have to minister. Nah, that's not going to happen. He's perpetuating these thoughts that we created our own, our own snare, not the adversary snare. This is our own snare that we have made and created ourselves because our heart is constantly beat down from the adversary. And there he sits in core meeting. Now he's surrounded in men that love him. And generally speaking, everybody feels like, man, my heart's hurting over here or life is really tough right now, but I don't know how to share it with the rest of you. And the elders quorum president's thinking, well, man, I really want to help these brother. And they're going through a lot of tough stuff. 
And so how do we begin to, how do we try to address it? Well, we think, okay, maybe let's get them serving. If we can get them serving, maybe that'll pull them out of this or they'll give them more purpose in life. And not that that's a bad idea, but then we, you know, we just sort of go into this broken record of pushing ministering and, oh, there's an next move. There's a move this next Saturday. I hope you can be there. Or there's this canning assignment. I hope you can be there. Hoping that these activities, these behaviors will address the heart, but it doesn't. What that heart needs is connection, right? Or we think, okay, we got to create some brotherhood and unity. So let's have an activity, right? But it's just a, you know, once a year activity that you get together and have pizza and, and a movie or something and, and that's it. Or you think, I'm just going to set a really strong example. And if everybody sees me here at core meeting smiling and sees me that the gospel is, is helping me overcome any problem that I'm having, maybe they'll think that this is the place they'll find it, right? But nobody's vulnerable. We wear masks and we just can't get past the posing and get past it and connect to the heart, right? And say, brother, like what's going on? And we've all been in that core meeting where that one person has have the bravery to raise his hand and say, brethren, I'm addicted to pornography and I don't know how to stop. Or I had 10 years of my life where I was addicted with pornography. And let me tell you how I, how I overcame it. That's a vulnerable moment. Like vulnerability is such a powerful part of, of increasing the quorum and sustaining the hearts in that quorum, because that is where the war is waging is on the hearts of men again. So that's sort of the groundwork I want to lay that leads into an experience that I had. Now, you'll all remember, hopefully, Steve Shields. Steve, I interviewed a year or so ago on the podcast, and he has a remarkable story of addiction and coming out of that addiction, and he's in recovery and, and doing great. And, and Steve is, is from since that interview, become such a dear friend to me. Well, through our interaction, my interaction with Steve, uh, you know, we he'd sort of be my go-to when I was creating content around the concepts of addiction, you know, for leading saints. And I always wanted to get his perspective on things because he has a great way of articulating it. He runs a great podcast called Unashamed and Afraid that you should definitely listen to and where he shares uh, recovering addict stories that are, are so inspirational. So I always go to him and, and sort of try and understand the perspective of an addict. Gratefully, I've, I have not had to experience, uh, you know, deep addiction in my life that that has uh, put many things I love on the line, right? So Steve's a great resource. Well, back in uh, a couple of years ago, Steve came to me and said, hey, Kurt, listen, like you've got to come to this Wild at Heart boot camp." And I'm like, okay, Steve, like interesting. What is it? And he's like, well, it's this boot camp. We, we go out in the woods and we, we sleep in cabins and then uh, have this great experience for three days that is just remarkable. I'm like, okay, Steve, it sounds interesting. And, you know, of course, I'm always trying to become familiar with the resources and effective approaches that are helping addicts and so forth. And I'm, I'm like, Steve, I, I appreciate you telling me about this resource, but I really don't want to go somewhere for three days just to understand the resource for addicts. And I don't see how that would help me since I'm not an addict. So I don't know if I'm interested. And he says, no, 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 it's not about, it's not for addiction. It's for men. Whether you have addiction or not, it's for men. I'm like, okay, interesting. Well, I sort of blew him off and I thought, you know, I'm always trying to say no to things in my life to stay focused. And, you know, I, I can't just say yes to everything. So I, I, I blew him off for that one. And, uh, <laughs> and then he came back to me and said, Kurt, we're having another boot camp. You need to come. And he got me to read the book Wild at Heart. Now, I don't know if you've read this book, Wild at Heart. I would highly, highly recommend this book. It's called Wild at Heart, Discovering the Secret of a Man's Soul. Every Elders Quorum president 
needs to read this book. Okay. This is like, just like I'd tell any elders corn president, you need to read, you know, Stephen Covey's stuff or Liz Wiseman's stuff. Like you need to read wild at heart, discovering the secret of a man's soul. And I read the book and it was incredible. It was incredible. It's written by a man named John Eldridge, who is not a Latter-day Saint. He's a, a Christian, I guess he's a pastor or he's a Christian uh, author. And, uh, has written several books, but this one is probably his most famous one. And it talks about the heart of a man, right? And we reviewed this book in, because later on, Steve uh, then convinced me to interview Doug Nilsson, which I did. And you can listen to his episode on the Leading Saints podcast. And he goes through some of these in more detail. But here's the basic three concepts it talks about. That every man's heart needs three things, a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. So, for example, a battle to fight. Every man needs to realize there is an adversary that is coming for his heart. That that is where the cunning plan is focused, is to stir their hearts, to stir their hearts up into contention, right? As we learn in Dr. Thomas 10. So, once we understand that we are in a battle to fight, that puts things in perspective and it gives us an opportunity to realize that we need to protect our heart and we need a purpose in life. We need a purpose. There are so many men in our quorum who go to a nine to five job every day that they don't like. They come home to a family where they feel like they're failing. And then they do that again and again and again, and then happen to show up at a quorum meeting where they often feel like they're failing as well. Right. So they need a purpose to get up and fight for, right. To realize the adversaries after their heart and they're going to battle it in a certain very proactive, intentional way and an adventure to live. Now, I've, I was just at an elders quorum social the other week here in my ward, and I was in this group of, of men as they were talking. They're all talking about their, you know, they like to road bike or mountain bike and, you know, go on these trails and do these races. And, and they're just like weekend warriors, right? And I sat there listening. And I'm just like, you guys, I am not like you at all. Like, I do not, I'm not the outdoorsy guy. I mean, sure, I appreciate a good hike once in a while, or, but I'm not, I'm not the type that get ex- excited about the outdoors thing. But this is their adventure. This is how they break away from being an attorney, you know, every day of the week or, or working in real estate. And then they go and they find adventure in the outdoors. Now that's not for everybody like myself. My adventure in life is doing this is my podcast is running as uh, being the executive director of leading saints. Like this is my passion and purpose. And it, it, it excites me and it's, it, uh, unbinds my heart. And it allows me to live and flourish and and achieve a purpose higher than myself. And because I have that purpose, I'm less likely to fall into the attacks, uh, fall under the attacks that the adversary sends me. Right now, if I didn't have this purpose, if I if I didn't have something that was exciting me and allowing me to to find adventure in life, yeah, I may be the one that's uh, that's fallen victim to to addiction. Right, I may be the one that's that's really struggling in life to succeed in my marriage. But this purpose fuels other things in my life and helps me, helps strengthen my heart. And then the last one, a beauty to rescue. Now, this doesn't mean that we, we all need this submissive woman in our life that is, is helpless and needs us at every turn. But I truly believe that most men, they do not know how to battle for the heart of, their, of the woman in their life, right? Whether they're single or married, Maybe she's in the other room crying and he doesn't know what to do other than to ignore her and maybe turn to video games, maybe escape through the evils of pornography, right? But this is part of our nature. 
that we need a beauty to rescue. And John Eldridge references the, the story of Adam and Eve throughout the book that men need an Eve in their life that they're battling for, that they're striving to win the heart of that woman. So back to the story. Here I am. I read this book. I'm like, okay, this is pretty good stuff. I'm listening, Steve. So he gets me, uh, sets me up with uh, Doug Nelson, who I interview. Turns out to be a fantastic episode, which again, you can go back and listen to. And now I'm committed. I'm like, okay, guys, I'll come to your boot camp, right? And I'm thinking, ah, oh, geez, like this, a men's retreat. And really the, the name of boot camp, like, <laughs> and I described it, I was describing it to somebody else like, okay, this is a boot camp. Like, do I have to do like push-ups and pull-ups? Like what's going on here? Like, I was just sort of weirded out by this, right? I'm not, I'm not the type that sings Kumbaya and, and walks on coals. So I was afraid that I, like we'd get up there and I'd have some guy like yelling in my face to rappel off a wall because that's, you know, the machismo of, of being a man and, and let's do this. You know, we're men in the forest. Like, I just thought, man, this, I hope this doesn't get weird. And then I showed up and the first thing I got at registration from my brother, Corey, who I love dearly now, but this is my first interaction with me, is this random person who's registering me stands up and says, hey, we give hugs around here. And I'm like, oh no, this is the beginning of the weirdness. But hey, I can give a hug. I'm not much of a hugger. I'm working on that, trying to be a better hugger. A better hugger. But nonetheless, he embraces me in such love. And I thought, okay, we'll see how this goes. And all of my apprehensions dissolved as the three days went by. Nothing was really required of me. It wasn't a big therapy session. It was simply a, a leadership conference in the woods, right? Nobody had to sing Kumbaya. You didn't have to do anything you didn't want to. Individuals, if you didn't feel comfortable, we could sit there and just listen. And most did, right? And it was great. I didn't feel like I was pushed outside my comfort zone at all. And then there was, I think it was on the first or second day, maybe early on the second day, during the, one of the meal times, I stood up and looked around and I thought, oh my goodness, this is what elders quorum is supposed to be. I saw men that were connecting. I saw men that were, that were uh, somewhere having a tough time and it brought them to tears and they weren't embarrassing tears. They feel like they could trust and be vulnerable with the men around them. And I thought, you know, this, this is what elders quorum is supposed to be. How are we missing it? And I went through the three days and I just couldn't wait to come home and share it with the audience, leading saints, and, and, and which I, I did through various methods. But I guess it sort of builds towards this episode. I want to put one solid episode together that would not only encourage people to consider these principles, but also to consider joining me on one of these wild at heart boot camps. And again, it's not like a boot camp, like an army boot camp. It's just a leadership conference in the woods. Okay. It's fantastic. and. You sleep in cabins on bunk beds and sure, it's not the Marriott, but, but it's fine. All right. You're not like in the wilderness on the, on the floor. It's, it's nothing like that. It's a great leadership conference in the woods that demonstrates a pattern based on very Christian principles of how we can rescue our hearts by finding a battle to fight, an adventure to live and a beauty to rescue. And the remarkable thing was, is, is any elders quorum presidency could see how it's modeled, this, this model, and bring it back to their quorums. You don't have to introduce new doctrine. You don't have to adjust the, the structure of the, how the quorum is. We have the structure, but we haven't figured out how to turn on the engine of our quorums. And this, this did it for me. And I couldn't wait. When I came back, I made sure I registered for the next boot camp. And I went back for a second time. 
this time we had 13 individuals from the Leading Saints audience that that trusted me and came. And I'm so glad they trusted me because every single one of them out of the 13, again, every single one of them walked away and had a remarkable experience greater than they could have ever could have ever anticipated from this. So I want to share some of those experiences uh, with you now. Uh, just a few uh, days ago, I gathered some of those brethren who went and sometimes some of them we had to connect uh, online since they were out of state. And uh, I gathered them together and we, I just asked them about their experience. You know, what, what was the before and after? What got you there? Some people were on the same boot camp that I was. Other people like Chris, who you're going to hear from first. Uh, Chris, man, remarkable story. He was on the road towards atheism. He had been struggling with addiction for so long. His heart was broken and he is, was sort of exhausted from his Latter-day Saint experience. And he was really on that path towards atheism. He had given up on God. And out of some miracle that he describes, he decided to go to this Wild Heart Boot Camp and it brought him back. And the beauty of it is, you know, I think there's that apprehension of, well, you know, they're using this guy's book who's not a Latter-day Saint, like, what is this? Like every individual that came, their testimony was deepened in the doctrine of Jesus Christ, in the restored doctrine, this restored gospel of Jesus Christ. It just magnified their testimony and recommitted them to this this gospel. And and uh, anyways, let me get to those experiences and uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up after that. So I'll just go through these. First one is Chris, and then uh, I'll introduce you to the others as we go. My name's Chris Ashworth. I'd grown up as a Latter-day Saint. Uh, grew up, I went on a mission, all that. My, my two big wounds were religious, religious-related wounds were first, a struggle with pornography through my teenage years. Second, my father stopped going to church when I was 12. And that just led to seeking validation through church. And it became not real. So church and God became a place where I sought validation. And so then when I started going through therapy, you know, uh, through Lifestar, through church and religion and God, all, you know, it all said, okay, well, it wasn't real. So I turned, turned away from it. I said, okay, I'll, I'll go search out and try to, try to find what is real. And that was a you know, miserable time. Started therapy at 30, lost faith in God at maybe 31 and a half, about a year and a half into therapy. And finally found God again. God found me a year ago. So 30, 37 uh, a year ago. So, huh. yeah, I started when I lost my, that faith in God. You know, I, I, my wife kept believing and, and kept walking in the message, you know, with, with God. And I, I told myself, well, I've got plenty of time. My boy's two years old. I'll make it, you know, I'll figure it all out before he gets baptized. A year ago, a year and a half ago, he got baptized and I didn't do it. I wasn't willing. This was just a couple months before the retreat uh, that I went on, the Wild of Heart retreat. And, and that was my spiritual rock bottom. That was an awful day. And it actually changed things. Like I started praying and I started hearing from God then. I doubted it and feared it. During Lifestar, uh, they had introduced the book Wild at Heart. Many years ago, so thirty, I was maybe 31, 32 years old. It was after I had, you know, started pushing back against God or doubting Him, and so so I explored the idea of, of reading Wild at Heart. I was considering Wild at Heart 
you know, on a, on a random Saturday morning, I was stopped by a yard sale. I usually don't stop by yard sales. I stopped by this yard sale and there was a book, Wild at Heart. And I said, oh, I've heard about this through, through Lifestar. Paid for it. It was 25 cents or 50 cents. And I was excited. So I go home, I start reading it. And I'm like, oh, God's all the way through this. You know, God, Jesus Christ, they're talking about all these therapy principles from Lifestar, that therapy principles that I know and appreciate now that I've, I've found a lot of value and healing through. But he's also weaving God through it. And, you know, I think I could just filter that out. So I kept reading it, trying to filter out the healing through God. And I just gave up, finally gave up. So set that aside for five years. You gave up on the book. And I the, gave the up on the book and, yeah. and the message. Mm-hmm. That's right. So five years, you know, go by. My marriage is just, it's suffering. It's struggling. My wife's committed and really committed. And if it had not been for her, I think I would have just gone really negative. But she, she stayed with me. She stayed loving me. And it was enough. It was enough. So I start considering a men's retreat. And I, I don't even know how I found it. But I found the wild, that Wild at Heart offered a men's retreat. So I said, okay, I'm going to try that. It, this, this one, I, I went to Colorado. I flew to Colorado. The author of the book, John Eldridge, and his team uh, from Ransomed Heart were there. And they, they spoke. They all, they all spoke live. There were 470 other men attending that time. A lot of them, a number of them had been there before, but most, most attending were first-timers like myself. And, you know, the, the first 24 hours was difficult. It was so much like reading the book the mm-hmm. first time. When I read the book, I heard, you know, when I was 32 and read the book, I was hearing all these messages that I didn't necessarily agree with and filtering it out. And that was my experience at the retreat. Except now this time, my wife was at home praying for me, just praying and praying. And I was surrounded by all these other men who believed, who felt the spirit enough to be there to reach out. And I was, I was engaging with everybody that I could, asking them about their relationship with God. And it was real and it was different than I had ever experienced before. So I, I asked myself in that first 24 hours, what is going on here and what do I do with it? Do I filter it out just like I did with the book or do I do something else? And finally, after probably after the poser session, <laughs> I chose faith. I chose faith in God for the first time in my life. I had never chosen faith, right? I had chosen actions. I had chosen to go to church. I had chosen to go on a mission, but I chose faith. And it changed my life. It was the rest of the experience, the rest of the weekend was incredible. The very next session about the father's wound, John was praying. John Eldridge was praying during it. And he, he paused and said, oh, Jesus is, Jesus is telling me to pray and ask that you forgive him. John said, Jesus is asking that you forgive him so that I forgive Jesus. And I'm like, what? What is that? And John explains, you know, there's 470 other men. It's not personal, but it felt so personal. Mm-hmm. And, but I thought about it and I thought, oh, I was angry at God and, and Jesus because they didn't come and rescue me through my addiction, through, through those years of pain that I had prayed over and over, searched the scriptures to find healing and relief through. 
And so I said, okay, Jesus, I, I forgive you. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, here's this perfect being who's asking for forgiveness. Like, so that, that God that I had internalized, that I had felt shame from, that I had felt fear from, all of a sudden was this personal, kind God. And within just hours, my experience of whether God existed and who God was, was just completely transformed. And the rest of the, the weekend was transformative. I went home transformed and my wife <laughs> couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. So I went, I go to church the week after I, we, we go to go to church and, and an hour before church, I panic and it, you know, it's, it's the, it's, it's our enemy, you know, trying to take away what had happened. And I was starting to feel like I never wanted to go to church again. Like I never wanted anything to do with it. I'm like, oh, it's all, but, and I had had situations like that before, you know, during those years of struggle, but they always lasted for months or weeks. This one out lasted 30 minutes, right? Because I reached out to God. I reached out in prayer and the rest of my life was transformed in similar ways. I went home and that relationship that had been going down with my wife, we got in our first argument or, or struggle, right? A difficult conversation. And I paused and I said, okay, let's pray. And we prayed and we kept trying to talk and it did not get better right away, right? And I was like, what's this? So we did it two more times. We prayed three times through that conversation and we got through it. We got through a conversation that we had not been able to get through for many years. <laughs> and there were, there we, had, we had a whole list of subjects that we disagreed about before I went, and all of those just resolved themselves without almost any effort. We were aligned. We were aligned, and God was leading us. I was looking to God. She was looking to God. And I finally understood what that means, like to, to put God first, to put God first in your marriage. So going into the, the, this uh, retreat experience, uh, I mean, you would you have, if someone asked you, would you have said you were an atheist? How were you even defining your faith? Yeah, no, yeah. You know, when I went, everybody, almost everybody there was an evangelical yeah. uh, Christian, probably, I would yeah, say. Yeah. And I told them that I was a Latter-day Saint. You know, that's that's who I was. That's who I was cultu culturally. That's, that's, you know, that's who I was. I did talk about that, that struggle with. I didn't allow myself to just say, okay, I'm an atheist. I always said, I struggle to believe in God. I struggle to believe in God. I'm, I'm not sure if he's there. Mm -hmm. I, again, I think if it wasn't for my wife, I, I might've just gone much more extreme in one direction or the other, but she kept me grounded. So walking into the, what did you have specific apprehensions that it, that it was going to be all about these principles of the book or, I mean, cause uh -huh. obviously it was so, yeah. but what did you expect walking in there that mm. you would experience? Yeah, I expected, I am going to a group of men who all believe in God <laughs> and I'm choosing to, to step into this situation and it, and it really intimidated me. I believed that there was a good chance that I would come out of that weekend just hating God and really rejecting it. I was going as taking a chance, right? I was going to take a chance. And, but I believed that by going into this, by surrounding myself with all these evangelical Christians and, and people who just knew Jesus, you know, in quotes, right? I might just reject it and say, no, that lifestyle is not for me. That's not for me. 
And I found, I found the opposite. I found life. I found people who did know Jesus. I found people who were walking with God in a way that I could not comprehend before and had never experienced in my life. And I think any situation we walk into, it's, we sort of default to, it's about all these people here Mm. and, you know, that guy looks kind of weird and this one smells and, (laughs) and, you know, but then it suddenly became an experience just between you and God, regardless of who else was in the room. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's good. You know, so, so early on, one of the, before I had chosen faith, one of the men that I sat down with at a meal shared with me that he had led retreats like this one in his home state of Wyoming for the last few years, you know, a few times a year. And I was still very questioning of how it was going to affect me. So I asked him, I asked that man, have any of the men that you have led through these retreats rejected it? Have any of them left just more angry at God and more, you know, upset than when they left? And he said, oh, no it's been the opposite. There have been people coming who, who were upset with God and they all found God by the end. Um, that gave me a lot of hope that I, that I didn't know to expect before. So one, a number of cultural things really stood out for me in a positive way. The way these men interacted with each other surprised me. One specific was we were all out hiking, you know, you go on this retreat and there's always time, there's time for, for adventure. And we, we, we went out for a hike up the mountain as we were walking. There's a, there's a group of seven or eight men. None of us knew each other before, but we're all just talking. One of the men shares that he just got laid off right before the retreat and he's going to go home and maybe have a week of work and, and then have nothing. And the men just reacted immediately. They stopped and surrounded him. They all put their arms on his body, somewhere on his shoulders, right? And surrounded him and stood in a circle, so much like a priesthood blessing, but it wasn't a priesthood blessing. It was just praying. They call it praying on him. Mm-hmm. They prayed on him. They took turns praying. Anybody who felt the spirit, anybody who wanted to, prayed for this man. And that was a just one of these informal, beautiful experiences. Yeah. That, that changed how I saw how you could experience God, how you could interact with men, and how you could respond much more informally than I need a priesthood blessing, mm-hmm. right? You know, they could have given him a priesthood blessing, you know, uh, in, if they were priesthood holders in a very similar situation, but it would have been more formal still. I loved and really appreciated the informality of it. So, so you ask about my worship now, and it's much more informal. It's much more pray always. It's much less, this is when I pray, this is when I go to church. It's much more like, this is what I do, you know? And when the opportunity comes up, I'm, I'm gonna, going to take it. Another, one more specific mm-hmm. example is there's, I was introduced at the, at the retreat to the idea of worship music, and everybody, all the men stand and sing to, a, to this Christian pop song that, that I've never heard, but they've got the words projected up there and everybody's just belting it out. And it was incredible, incredible that the songs are still the favorite on my, I now have a, a gospel playlist on my iPod and it's, and it's what I listen to most of the time. And those, the two songs, Build My Life and Reckless Love, just are my favorite. They, they, they help transform that. So I've taken that home. I've said that changed. That was a piece of the life changing for me. I went home and we, my wife and I have led a few 
worship nights at our home, Mm -hmm. you know, just invited anybody over. But all of it is directed towards trying to find God, trying to bring the spirit. It's not about having a meeting. It's not about having an activity. It's about how can we bring God into this? How can we help people feel the spirit? And so that's how worship has changed. So the, I came to a lot of guys story, I think is like, they were very hesitant about coming, you know, whether it's angry at God or I don't know God or distant from God. For me, I found it very early on in my recovery process. And I, and some other men had mentioned it that they'd done and they'd been. And when I started recovery, I was so broken that any, any pride that I had or any, I mean, I, I was just desperate for a connection. And, um, cause I, I'd had such a large dual life that finally, when I let that wall down, I mean, there was, there was a lot to fall. And so I had always in the movie, heart of man, when author says, you kind of put the face of your earthly father on the face of God. And so for me, it was, you know, and I was growing up, you know, playing basketball in the backyard, not something my dad would ever come out and do with me really rare occasion. He would do that, but he would never miss one of my comp basketball games. So for me, it was very clear performance equaled love. And with LDS culture, not the doctrine with LDS culture, there's a really great way to check those boxes. So AP on my mission, came home, I'm, you know, elders corn president in a bishopric, getting married in the temple. So I'm, I'm checking all of these, but, and that's just, that's just who I thought God was. That's just how I thought it worked. And so with that kind of mindset, I came to my first wild at heart retreat. And, um, I just remember I didn't do guy friends. I had two men in my life. Either you were helping me get somewhere. I was learning from you or so helping me with my perfection or you were someone that I could help. Thus again, helping my perfection. Right. But like just actual friends, like men you were friends with, like, I didn't do that. Like, I didn't know what that was. And so, you know, I show up to this thing and, and they, they're not real, like explaining what it is, you know? And, um, I remember I wanted to know exactly what it was so I could calculate that outcome so I could understand it. I could read the whole situation and, and do it perfect. Right. And, um, so they're just like, no, you just kind of come to this thing. And I'm like, okay, well, what's it about? And it's like, well, God, and you can read this book. And it's like, well, okay, but what do you do? And it's like, well, just, just come. And I'm like, okay. And like I said, I was in such a desperate, broken place. I'm like, dude, you could tell me whatever. And I would try it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, seeing some other men and I kind of got up there and the two biggest things that hit me were experiencing God's love through brotherhood. And we spend so much time in the church talking about quorums and the priesthood and a royal priest and we gather together. And the truth is we have some rich traditions and stuff around that that are really positive, right? But I just don't know that we really see the value in that as much as we could from a cultural perspective. And so stepping into a culture of you know, vulnerability, I've never heard men be that vulnerable in just a group of men. I tend to consider myself to be someone very bold. And so if I'm like, oh, I can't believe that guy just said that, you know, pretty. And just the acceptance, I had never experienced acceptance that way. To me, I always had to have a reason to be accepted. I needed to be doing something for you. 
telling you something you didn't know, serving you in some way to be accepted. So kind of to highlight that experience, there's a guy who comes uh, named Corey. I call him CT now. He's this big, he's got that kind of big, you know, bear hug. And I come up and, you know, you're real, I'm not sure who knows me. And some of these men had been several times. So they're all like buddy, buddy. And that almost makes me more insecure, right? Because I'm like, oh crap, you know? And I walk in, they're like, yeah, come register over here. And I walk in and like, I just, men have just never looked at me like that. And um, the way he looked at me and uh, he just embraced me. I just, I mean, I broke down like I'm breaking down now. I mean, I just had never felt that from other men. I had felt, uh, you know, validation, you know, like when you're on the sports team, it's like, Hey, way to knock down that J let's get the W, you know, very kind of that way. But just this, just this acceptance. And like, I think that's how it'll be when we meet Jesus. I think it's going to be like that, that kind of, when we talk about God's love. And so experiencing that through these other men. And, um, I remember the first time I went, they're like, Hey, we'll pray with you. You know, you can pray with other men. And I'm like, Nope. And I remember feeling like drawn to do that several times throughout the weekend. Like it was like, well, you could have him pray with you about some of your wounds as a kid. God telling me that. And I'm like, uh, I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to go do that. And when I left, I regretted not having that experience. And so the second time I went, I, I did that. And again, I had this level of just acceptance and brotherhood. And so when I describe it to people now, they're like, what is it? And I'm like, I can't explain it. And it, I can't explain it to you because it's like saying what a salt tastes like, that kind of analogy. And I'm like, you haven't experienced God's love through brotherhood like this. So I cannot explain it to you. I'm not just trying to be like, not going to tell you unless you come. Like there's the bait. Like I literally don't know how to express to you what I experienced. And so what I will tell you know, other people in the church is I'm like, it's just what elders quorum should be. I imagine that, you know, if we, if Joseph Smith ran my elders quorum, that I would get that bear hug when I walked in and I wouldn't be able to come in on Sunday and leave and show up to moves and activities and basketball and not be seen. I think you'd be seen if he was there, right? Or if if Jesus was there. My name is James White uh, and I live in Southern California. Born and raised here, and so have ended up uh, most of my life here. Lifelong member of the church. And my introduction to boot camp, to Wild at Heart, came through uh, the Leading Saints podcast. And so I had been uh, a loyal subscriber and listened to a majority of the the podcasts uh, that you, Kurt, uh, had put on. And certainly benefited from those in, in many different ways. Most of those, I think, in... Uh, a, a way that I would uh, apply them in my calling on Sundays and thinking about other people. And then there were really two podcast episodes that made Leaning Saints much more personal to me. And the first one was the discussion of No More Mr. Nice Guy. And I recognized a lot of my nice guy tendencies and how that was hurting me and impacting my life. And that started me thinking a little bit deeper uh, because generally I considered myself very happy, strong testimony, good relationship with God. I know that he loves me and that my savior loves me. And I kept thinking to myself, if I know these things and I feel these things, what's missing in my life? Why do I feel a little bit empty inside? And then came along the podcast uh, with Doug Nielsen and speaking specifically to Wild at Heart and discussion of the boot camp. 
And that propelled me much further forward in this journey that I've had. And everything that Doug had to say resonated very deeply. And I immediately went out and got the book and I started reading. At that point, however, uh, I did not consider the boot camp to be something... It really didn't register, to be honest. I kind of dismissed it very quickly. But as podcast episodes continued, uh, Kurt, you were diligent in mentioning them and then speaking at least briefly to your own experience. And that kind of gave me heart, which now post-retreat means a lot more to me. I needed the courage to do something for myself. And I very quickly knew that the boot camp was something that I needed to do. And just as been shared by uh, these other men, uh, I did not know exactly what to expect. I was certainly reassured by the fact that, that Kurt was adamant and that it wouldn't be a, a strange and weird experience, but that it would be powerful. And so I just went by faith. And I did not attend with anybody that I knew. I knew that Kurt would be there, but I had never met him before. But I, I just knew that something was waiting for me there. So when I got there, we had to park just slightly outside the camp and drive up and we were met by a group of men. And they were there ostensibly to help us with the luggage. But when I exited the vehicle, I was greeted by a number of big bear hugs. And I didn't expect that. I I didn't know that was coming, uh, but I immediately felt and knew that that was what I was looking for. And throughout that, those few days, I, I experienced this connection with uh, other men that definitely has sorely been lacking in my life. And got a wonderful father, wonderful brother, a couple close friends of mine. But the vulnerability that we shared, the authenticity that we shared through the entirety of boot camp was something that touched me uh, very, very deeply. And therefore influenced also how I view God and my relationship with him. I think that the other thing that connected with me is during a few of the sessions, and then certainly during almost all of the meals that we shared together, the question of, James, what makes you come alive or what makes your heart come alive? It was posed to me and I could not answer that question. I could default to a few and say that my wife, my family, my children make me come alive. And I think that that's true to a degree. but it was not the full answer. And I realized that I was seeking my validation in the wrong places. And that question has become very important to me. And, and if I'm being honest, I am still searching, trying to understand what the answer to that question is for me. But I have no doubt that the experience that I've had so far at boot camp, both before and after, is leading me much further to answering that question for myself. And yeah, it has really begun to change my life and opened up the way that I think about religion and what it means uh, to me. And also, if I'm being honest, I'm still very, very early on in this learning curve. I think I'm set very much in my ways in terms of my own worship and the culture in the church. And a lot of that, I think, is wonderful and perfectly good. But uh, I'm trying to stop posing so much and become more of who I really am supposed to be and develop that uh, intimate and personal relationship with God that I know I need to. My first retreat was in um, November 2012. 
And uh, I was invited by my therapist to go up there. He just said, yeah, I think it'd be good for you. And I didn't really ask a lot of questions. Going to therapy was a leap of faith for me. And I chose at that point, I was just going to do whatever my therapist said as an act of faith and put into practice whatever he suggested, trusting that his years of experience and profession would lead to healing. So going up there, I remember being super nervous about going up and like meeting. I'm kind of introverted. So me going in and meeting who knows what these weirdos might be like and happen to potentially like sleep in the same room as some dude that like snores all night long and I won't get any sleep or I didn't want some guy, you know, crying all over me and wiping his nose on my shirt or whatever. I ended up being that guy, by the way. Uh, (laughs) But so I went in with a lot of apprehension. I was pretty nervous, but I was, I was going in and with a leap of faith and going into it, you know, I had been pretty angry at God because I had spent a lot of years trying to overcome this draw to pornography and this problem that I had with pornography. I would, you know, I kind of had this cycle that I would look at pornography about every three months, you know, anywhere from, you know, 10 minutes to, you know, several hours. And then I'd kind of hop back on that wagon and I just would shame cycle really bad. And that caused me to really beat myself up. So I had a lot of this sense of self-loathing, just this real hatred and disappointment for myself. And I felt that God was perpetually disappointed in me. And I was angry that God, and it's strange, I got into therapy, started finding healing, finding sobriety, finding the tools to help me get there. That's when I became mad at God of like, this has been there this whole time and you didn't point me here earlier. There was a lot of anger around that. I'm like, I've spread shame onto my kids. I've already done all this damage. I've hurt my wife. I've created all these issues in my life. And the answer was right in front of me. And you couldn't have pointed me there somehow, some way before 15 years of this. That created some real kind of anger toward him as I went up there. Well, I mean, it it existed. So that was the state I was in when I went up there. And they, when I got up there, um, one of the presenters, he started his opening session with a prayer. And the way he talked to God just broke open my heart. I had never heard anybody talk to God in such an intimate and personal way, in a way that was so, uh, just so relational, so intimate. It was, and so I had just never heard it like that. And God cracked open my heart right then and there. And I just started weeping. And I did not stop weeping for three days as God took each of the messages that was taken through that. It felt like it was tailored just to me. And one of the main messages of, of the men's retreat up there, the Warrior Heart Boot Camp, one of the main messages is God loves you no matter what. He'll take you where you're at. And for me, coming up from a place of God is perpetually disappointed in you. I'm full of self-loathing and hatred. And to have this sliver of hope that maybe God isn't perpetually disappointed in me, that God actually loves me where I'm at right now, that he'll take me there where I'm at right there. 
man, it was a sliver of hope. I just, it was just this hope. Could that be true? It was physically painful to start to believe that I could feel it in my chest of, could this be possible? And I wanted it to be, I so wanted it to be true. I wanted to believe that God loved me. I wanted to so much. And it, for me, I came home hopeful. I didn't come home like a completely changed man, but I came home with hope. And I came home with the recognition that who I thought God was, wasn't who God is. And I recognized that I had basically created a false God. And I thought that that was God. And I decided from, from that first boot camp to kind of dismantle or really just throw away all my beliefs about God and kind of start over and just be like, okay, God, I just heard up there that, that you love me no matter what. I don't have to earn it. So I'm just going to start right there. And for the next six or eight months, I basically started to look for ways in which that could be true. So if a thought came to my mind or if a principle came to me that was trying to tell me who God was or what God's character was like, I first measured it against that first principle of God loves you no matter what. And if it didn't quite fit with that, then I was like, all right, I'm not going to believe that one for now. I'm not going to put that into the personality of God right now. But anything else that that could line up with, I started to attribute those to the character and nature of God. And slowly over that six to eight months between that fall boot camp and then the next boot camp the following spring, I came up to boot camp that second time with an assurance much more solid that going to the second boot camp is what helped me realize, oh, I'm actually starting to believe this, that God really does love me. It helped me see that, that I was starting to integrate the, what are the true principles, the true character and nature of God into my belief system. And my relationship with him since then has been able to become much more intimate and much more real. So that I would say that that first retreat, that first boot camp, it changed the spiritual trajectory of my life. And it's been a wonderful journey ever since. Awesome. And how many boot camps have you been on now? Uh, well, <laughs> two to three a year since 2012. Wow. So um, add that <laughs> do one the up. Math. Do the math on that one, whatever we're at there for a lot of years. So I get a heavy dose of God's love from these um, every year. And it's the greatest pleasure of, of my, you know, I look forward to it all year, every year. Well, I'd say what I most powerfully experienced is it's the one experience in your life where you will literally step off the merry-go-round of, of the routine and the habitualness and the pattern of life and be able to step back and uh, step right out of that. And through the process of very personally um, journaling and uh, pondering, you know, the things we just don't do in our lives because we're too busy, by doing that and inviting God to be a participant with us and to, to really run that for us as we make that effort and expend that energy. It's miraculous. It's, uh, it's just something we, 
we just don't naturally do is just stop and, and do the pondering, the journaling, and really work it out as to uh, what's happening that we we're easy to, it's easy to describe what we don't like, but we don't sit down and take the time to really work out what we do want and what our, what our goals would be in terms of being happy and being uh, proactive and being successful and, and being fulfilled. But uh, you definitely have about three days of solid experience of that, which is totally, I think, unique, at least has been in my life. After 30 years in these church callings of, of service, a lot of the spiritual experiences of bishop or state presidency Elders Quorum President, these callings, uh, a lot of the spiritual experiences relate as we're serving others. And um, we get really um, engaged and, and uh, very, uh, I think of a word that would describe it, but just very um, involved in other people's lives and in, in feeling the spirit as the spirit is allowed to enter their lives. And I don't know that we take the time ourselves to personally ponder with our Heavenly Father, you know, Heavenly Father, what do you think about me? And so for me, I came back with an extremely intensified testimony and spiritual feeling uh, for my Father in Heaven and for my Savior in my personal life versus just related to, to service and to being involved in the church. I think it all centers around just taking that break, that extensive of a break, and with the uh, the guidance of the uh, people involved in presenting the, the boot camp, the uh, sharing of their own experiences, just takes down some of the walls that uh, no matter how much we do the, the routine worship, things in, in their lives in the church, they can be done, I think, sometimes at a, I guess, a superficial level. In my life, they've been more potent, I guess, when I've had usually some adversity, uh, sickness of kids or my wife or Things like that that bring us to a humility posture where you feel like you can't go forward without some influence and some feeling of the Savior's love. Often in life, we go into kind of a cruise control where, yes, we're doing all those habits of worship, but um, sometimes coming away and, you know, all you can really say is, well, I've been to the temple, not I had a great experience at the temple. And so, you know, I'm being honest and saying that that was my experience many times. But in this case, you, you sit back and you, you're kind of led to, to realize some of the cost in your life of doing things the way you're doing them. Maybe not getting, not applying the gospel to its potential in your own personal life and not, not taking the time. I think it was Elder Richard G. Scott that used to talk about a lot of this subject matter where he would talk about the importance of getting off the, the merry-go-round of the world, pondering, writing down your thoughts. And I guess it's just three days of intensive focus on that is something that just doesn't happen in most people's normal life. It certainly hasn't in mine. I mean, there's there's spiritual highlights for sure. All of us have. And there's times that we're spiritually low and it relates to the energy we're putting into those habits of worship. But um, it's the real gut level, personal type of things that I think we read about Enos experiencing where, you know, he wanted that feeling, that spirit, more than you wanted to live. And hearing some of the people at the boot camp share their experiences of where they've been in life and how they were rescued by, by the Savior and by the humility that uh, their, their situation in life brought them to and uh, made them totally open to that uh, very thing that's available to us all the time. 
I'll tell you, when I got back from boot camp, I gave my wife the biggest, warmest, sincere, intense hug I've ever given her in my life. I mean, you really, you really spiritually take a look at those relationships and, and how important they are to you. And uh, it, um, it was a profound, profound experience, that part. There you have it. Some awesome testimonials from uh, some individual experiences at the boot camp. Uh, I loved getting to know these individuals and it was, it was such a blessing. And again, out of the every individual that came, every single one of them had a remarkable experience. It, not only did I not get negative feedback, like nobody was even mediocre about it. Like, oh, that was pretty nice. It was a remarkable experience. And I hope that you'll join us on the next uh, boot camp. And regardless of when you're listening to this, I'm, I'm recording this in June of 2019. But regardless of when you're recording or when you're listening to this, uh, you can go to awarriorheart.com. That's awarriorheart.com. And to see the details of, of the next uh, boot camp that's coming up. And more than likely, I will be there. If you have a question, if I'm going to be there, feel free to send me a message at leadingsaints.org slash contact because I would love to enjoy this event with you as well. And if when you go there and register, you can use the code leading saints, one word, and you'll get additional discount. And they'll also know that uh, you were, you're coming by the result of, of the leading saints community. Now uh, there's they typically the group that does this through a warrior heart. A lot of them are Latter-day Saints. Again, it's not a Latter-day Saint retreat. It's generally Christian because there are individuals who are not Latter-day Saints there. And so they keep it very non-denominational. But a lot of the individuals that participate and run this, the boot camps that uh, at a warrior heart are, do have a Latter-day Saint background. And they do one in Alaska and uh, they do one in, in Utah from time to time. And uh, the way I see it is if you, if you're out of state, if you're out of Utah and you have to fly to Utah, you might as well fly to Alaska. In my opinion, I mean, Utah is beautiful, but Alaska, I mean, that's an experience, especially in the outdoors. And that concludes this throwback episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Remember, solve the burden of meetings by visiting leadingsaints.org 14 and getting 14 days access to the Meetings with Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.